Live from a dark, dank tunnel where we were just hanging with the mole people who are actually much friendlier than the corporate media makes them out to be. I mean, they're people after all, and, you know, you can just hang with them and just chill with them and just, you know, just, eh. And eventually you will come back out of the tunnel because, well, this is Limbo. I am obviously still not Chuck, nor do I wish I was. I am just producer Sebastian, producing and monologuing again this week, a duty that soon will come to an end, or rather, that comes to an end after today. We are overjoyed to announce our beloved host, Chuck Mertz's imminent return to This Is Hell on a regular basis. Tomorrow, he will stream and record another Patreon podcast, and next Monday on May 23rd, 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time, we will exit limbo mode for good, well, knock on wood as usual, and return to regular programming. We will start our regular programming with the interview I foolishly promised everyone last week. Chuck will really now interviewing writer Adrian Shirk on her recent book, Heaven is a Place on Earth, Searching for an American Utopia. Chuck will also have updates on the formerly annually This Is Hell Listener Appreciation Party that's now taking place on September 17, and on whatever else he will be doing in the immediate future on this year God's favorite radio program. And as usual, if you disagree with that notion, take it up with Chuck, um... Or just prove him wrong. I, I just, I'm just the messenger here. This is not an insurrection. This is not a revolt. This is just simply limbo. And as is the nature of all things, the end, my dear friends, is indeed nigh. Producing today's show is again me, Sebastian. And what's new with me? Well, just the usual trouble when you're waiting for a green card and just realize again and again that. Without it, uh, you're just basically a third-rate citizen in this country. Mm, I mean, well, you're not really a citizen at all. You're just a person who exists here. Um, yeah, but I don't want to bore the people with too many details on that. Bureaucracy is indeed hell. Um, while we are wait patiently waiting for Chuck's return, we have been busy behind the screen... The streams. Behind the screens... Behind the screens, behind the scenes, Jesus Christ, Sebastian, get it together. We are steadily adding more archival materials to our YouTube page at youtube.com slash thisishellradio1996, and I will try some new things there in the immediate future. Um, I, we, the royal we, the royal I. Today's show has a few all-new things for you, dear listeners. One of these all new things is this week's question from hell this week's question from hell is what are you replacing white people with what are you replacing white people with you can send us your question your answer brother 
also questions if you have them, but like not questions to the to the question from hell. Other than what were you thinking? You're white yourself, but come on, if you can't laugh about yourself about your own whiteness, then then what are you even doing here? Uh, you can send us your answer to this week's question from hell via Facebook at facebook.com/slash this is hell radio. DM it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio, or email it to Chuck along with your wishes for him getting better. To Chuck at thisishell.com or mail it to me at Seb at thisishell.com. We must have your answer by the end of today's show following an all-new live moment of truth by Jeff Dorchin. And the best answer to the question from hell will win its author eternal fame and endless fortune powered by whatever piece of This Is Hell merch they want. The t-shirt tote bag, the trucker hat, the coffee mug, the loaded flash drive containing the This Is Hell archive of interviews, the face mask, or the winter hat. Whoever would get a winter hat right now, but, well, you do you. I'm not your dad. You can see all of our merchandise right now if you go to thisishell.com and click on support. There you can contribute to completely listener-funded This Is Hell. It is you, after all, the listener, who makes this year's show possible. So, thanks to all of you for your support. I will have some of your answers following the upcoming interview. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your life at the ice rink, in the park, at the self-checkout at the grocery store, with the shop security about to tase you for smashing the damn robo-cashier because unexpected item in bagging area. Return item to bagging area. Unexpected item in bagging area. Return item to bagging area. You just know that this is hell. And, uh, yeah, and today I will be finishing up, um sort of my uh, uh, series on American fascism. And, uh, and due, to, due to that generally just being an ongoing um, thing that I talk about, and, um, and due to current events, uh, today I want to briefly talk about the concept of whiteness and about the concept of, quote-unquote, Western civilization. Because, well... I guess I can just introduce this 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 segment where I introduce interviews. I'll just let let me just call this what it is. It is <laughs> Seb's soapbox. Yeah, so today I'm going to talk about whiteness and Western civilization. Uh, because both whiteness and the concept of Western civilization as such are they're social construct constructs, they're inventions. And both are relatively young inventions in the grand scheme of history. Whiteness, the American modern form of it, was invented to differentiate enslaved people from indentured servants. And so, in, in, uh, uh, in reverse, blackness was also invented to differentiate white people from indentured... Well, white people from black people. Um, and ultimately, all of these inventions had the utility that they would prevent what I would call proto-class solidarity in 17th century American colonies. 
And this started out because Virginia landowners became deathly afraid of the indentured servants that they imported from England as uh, workers on their plantations in Virginia. Uh, after events like Bacon's Rebellion, uh, if you don't know what that is, just uh, look it up. We don't have time to go into that here right now. Um, and, and well, so in Virginia in the, in the 17th century, African slaves had been uh, uh, basically there since in 1619, uh, but initially these African people could earn their freedom just like the white indentured servants could. But after the uprisings against the colonial masters, the Virginia aristocracy pivoted to black slaves as the primary source of their labor. And uh, blackness became over time more of a caste, uh, a caste, caste, caste marker of people that were property. And, and also, blackness then meant that, uh, an erasure of all the previous identities the people imported as slaves had before, uh, before they, they, they were abducted and brought across the Atlantic Ocean. So their various tribal, ethnic, and religious identities were broken down or basically just, just pounded to a pulp and reshaped into the identity of African or black and this, of course, is grossly oversimplified, but out of this, the American colonists eventually began to identify themselves as white and others as, well, non-white, as black, as Indian, and, uh, yeah, and then eventually also just other, you know, other colorations. America was not the only place, however, where this happened, by the way. If one looks to the other side of the globe, to Asia, and uh, the European colonization that happened there, we can find another instance where whiteness and non-whiteness was indeed invented out of colonial necessities. And as Ben Ehrenreich states in the interview I'm going to play, global connections are much older than most people today would know. Uh, and so, and this is kind of... This is kind of funny. For example, the Romans, the Romans were aware that the Chinese existed, but they did not write about the Chinese as as racially other people. The Chinese essentially only turned yellow, to use a phrase from uh, 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 historiography, basically, uh, when the European colonizers began to exploit them and the pesky colonial subjects refused to play along and needed to be oppressed. And because it is always easier to oppress someone who you just see as fundamentally different from yourself, well, that's where these things come from. Again, it's grossly oversimplified, but there is a truth in all of this, I promise. Of course, white for a long time was synonymous with Christian, and everyone who wasn't Christian was for the most part also not white, but that then becomes complicated as American colonization proceeds, and increasing numbers of both indigenous people but also of imported slaves become Christianized. So the religious distinction increasingly lost meaning and was then replaced with a more racialized one. And this is also one of the things where we need to talk uh, about the Enlightenment and take the Enlightenment uh, thoughts and Enlightenment philosophers to task. Because after all, the way that the scientific revolution broke the world down into various hierarchies and orders, the Enlightenment thinkers that came out of, uh, out of that just began to apply uh, the same concepts to people at large. And that's how you end up with scientific racism, with phrenology and eugenics. And there is, there is, in other words, basically a straight line from Enlightenment thought to the Holocaust. 
By which I mean to say that we need to be very careful when applying supposedly scientific order to the natural world. Especially since we, people, human beings, are still a part of that world whether we want it or not. But what about Western civilization? It's a strange misnomer, because after all, the sources of most of that civilization come from what Europe would consider the East. Even when what people would consider the pinnacle of Western culture, the classical Greek and Roman texts, uh, they were lost for hundreds of years after the, after the fall of Rome. Uh, and the ones who preserved them for future rediscovery were not Europeans or even Christians, but Muslim scholars. And when the Europeans went on their crusades ransacking the, the Middle East, they then re-imported the ancient texts Back, and that was one of the reasons that we have the Renaissance. Christianity also, as everybody should know, has its roots outside of Europe. Our numbers are Arabic, our, mathemat our, our mathematics are mostly Indian, and our grammar system is too. And for most of its history, Europe was a cultural backwater. Just look at the way Muslim scholars view the world. Like, they don't talk about Europe in the, in the Middle Ages or, like, for the longest time as anything. But, you know, like, that, that, that dank, dark place where the, the, these, relig these religious nutjobs live. Um, and besides that, the world has always been more interconnected than ideas like Western civilization want us to believe. Because at the intersection of Western civilization and concepts like whiteness lie ideas like ethnostates, and those just never existed. Racially pure states, racially pure civilizations never really existed, at least not outside of fascist fantasies of mythical past. Muslim Vikings were a thing just as much as black African European knights. Ultimately, the problem with such ideas are their utilities. Racism prevents solidarity and makes people easier to control, divide, and conquer. Belief in superior civilizations is adjacent to patriotism, is adjacent to nationalism, and thus ultimately to fascism. And belief in our own superiority and in the inferiority of everything else, be it other people or nature, leads to a dead planet. As writer Ben Ehrenreich will explain in this interview from May 2019. Enjoy. This is hell. Our uniquely European faith in progress is a system of dominance founded in racism and moral superiority that has been destructive to our planet, even destroying civilizations that had actually shown more progress than ours. Here to help us examine our misguided faith in progress, author Ben Ehrenreich wrote the article, After the Storm, Progress, and the Demanded Quest for Historical Purity, which appears in the Baffler number 43. Welcome to This is Hell, Ben. Thank you, Chuck. How's it going? Good. Ben is the author of the novels Ether and The Suitors. His latest nonfiction book is 2017's The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine. You can follow Ben on Twitter, at Ben Ehrenreich, and you can find out more about Ben at his website, benehrenreich.net. What do you mean by, and I hate to do this, I hate to parse a title of somebody's work, but what do you mean by historical purity, and who is seeking this historical purity? Well, um, 
to to make a, a really complicated uh, essay as simple as I can. Um, something happened in about the middle of the 18th century, um, and and two things happened at roughly the same time. More than these two things, and I'm just going to talk about them. Um, and one is that you see the first articulations of what we now understand as the narrative of progress. Um, this notion that things are improving, that time is a on a one-way track, um, and it's getting better. Um, and you know, w- one thing that I know in the in the piece is that this is always um, time is always understood also in terms of space, um, in terms of places on the globe. Um, so the the place of the present, which is also the place of the future, is Europe. Um, this is where things are getting better. And the place of the past is for the most part understood as the Americas, which is the sort of the, the most sort of savage and barbaric land, you know, peopled by bar- barbarian tribes. Um, so progress at once works in time and it, and it you know, traces out this straight arrow from, from savagery um, to the heights of European civilization. And it works as a way of placing the people on the globe on this, on this hierarchy. Um, and at around the same time, um, there was something else going on, which a, a scholar named Martin Bernal wrote about um, a lot in the 80s and 90s in this sort of titanic three-volume work called Black Athena, which was the kind of ethnic scrubbing, um, we could say ethnic cleansing if we want, of, um, of European um, heritage, of the... Of the um, heritage of the Renaissance um, and of, of European civilization properly. Because, you know, if, if Europe was going to be on top, um, if Europe was going to be the, the great inheritor of, of all of um, human history, it needed to give itself a heritage and it needed to give itself a, a very pure lineage. And it did that um, in various ways by denying the African and the Middle Eastern and Mesopotamian um, links to what we now understand as classical civilization to Greek and, and Roman culture. Um, you know, during the, during the Renaissance, which is not that much long, uh, not that you know, distant time to this period, uh, people had been very happy to understand, first of all, they didn't understand themselves as the, the greatest civilization on earth. They, under, they, they believed very, you know, very clearly that the greatness was in the past. Um, greatness belonged to the Greeks and to the Egyptians, um, and they had no problem um, like admitting the greatness of of other civilizations that were not European. And this stopped um, beginning in the in the mid 18th century, so that by the 19th century we have this fiction, um, which we still have today, um, and we you know we see it coming out very clearly in, I think, the, the very heightened racial discourse that's come out since Trump, Trump's election, um, this fiction that there is this thing called Western civilization, which is this straight line of progress that goes from the Greeks, who just sort of exist suddenly in this wonderful, you know, uh, sort of white statued purity um, of, of reason suddenly landing on the earth um, through the Romans um, into Europe um, and eventually across the Atlantic to the United States. And that we have this great heritage, uh, which is purely European, and everyone else are sort of these, these awful, irrational savages uh, that would still be, you know, kicking around in the dirt if it wasn't for us. And, you know, we see this reflected very clearly in some of Trump's uh, comments about African nations. We see this in, uh, in the comments of his supporters all the time and in the discourses of many of our 
highly respected public intellectuals. Um, and this is, I think, you know, very clearly a discourse of, of white supremacy. Yeah, that was a fantastic overview. One of the things I was thinking about when reading your article was how we have, uh, since the mid-18th century, we'll get into the writing of uh, Turgot in a little bit that uh, talks about this, but how that kind of thinking about the Western civilization, uh, how that affects our imagination, how it creates a more balkanized world, how us turning... Uh, uh, Europe, Europe turning its back on past civilizations after revering them for so long, kind of, uh, you know, balkanized the world and made the, the, the Europe in our imagination, Middle East in our imagination, made in Asia in our imagination. None of these things really existed. Was the world more globalized far before globalization? It was it more globalized before 1750 than it is today, because it seems like this reverence for past civilizations would cross borders and not make us as balkanized, would make us more globalized. Were we more of a globalized culture before globalization? I mean, I think the really, you know, going back uh, millions of years, as long as humans have, um, you know, since humans left Africa, Humans have been moving constantly, and, and I mean, and I think uh, trade routes go back much farther than we thought they did. Um, global levels of trade, I think, you know, globalization is a is a is an absolutely ancient phenomena. Um, I think Europe certainly, uh, you know, until the you know 14th century certainly uh, was not a particularly sophisticated or cosmopolitan place. It was an incredibly backward place. You know, if at the time, if you wanted to look at where the sort of most exciting civilizations on the on the planet were, you would not look to Europe. Um, you know, you, you would be much more likely to to look to the Indian subcontinent, to, to, to China, to the Americas, to parts of Africa, um, where there were, you know, civilizations that were far more, you know, technologically and intellectually developed than Europeans were. Um, but, you know, one of the things that happened, of course, in 1492 is, is the Europeans happen across the Americas and more or less accidentally, uh, not entirely accidentally, they did what they could to help it along. But through, you know, the help of, of you know, bacteria um, and viruses uh, wipe out most of the continent and um, do their best to kill the people that disease doesn't take care of and then bring all of that wealth back. Um, and with that moment, with that, that with that conquest, Europe was able to start telling itself this story about its superiority, uh, and to believe it, um, and to try to figure out ideological ideological ways to account for it, um, you know, narratives that would justify it. Um, and uh, I think you know we're still obviously dealing with this. But in that notion of European superiority in that notion of European progress, if Europeans really believe in that notion of progress, and if they really have that faith in progress, then how is 20th century fascism allowed? How does fascism fit into that notion of faith in progress? You know, I mean, I think fascism, I think if you look at uh, the you know, intellectual roots of European fascism, whether they're, you know, the Italian fascism or, or Nazism, um, they had a profound belief in progress, which is, I think, deeply tied to, um, to the, you know, a lot of the um, 19th and 18th century thinkers that we, that, you know, are still quite accepted today. 
um, you know, there, there was a profound and I think even utopian, although we look back on it with horror, um, belief that uh, human society could be could be perfected. Um, and I, I think, you know, in the this notion of a, you know, certainly if you look if you look at the um, at, you know, if you look at the architecture of fascism, whether it's in in, uh, in Germany or in, in Italy, um, it's calling back on these classical roots. Um, you know, Hitler, the, the intellectuals around Hitler did everything they could to tell this, to tell a story of a, of racial purity that went back for centuries. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and that very much, I think, is the same story that we, that we see in, uh, that I'm describing here, um, of all connections to the rest of the world being um, sort of cut off and rejected um, in order to establish this pure lineage. So the sense of European superiority actually, obviously, feeds into the rise of Nazism. You also write that the first explicit articulation, I want to make sure we get to the writing of Turgot, the first explicit articulation of faith and progress is generally agreed to have appeared in a speech delivered in 1750 by the brilliant political economist and Robert-Jacques Turgot, then just 23, it is surely no coincidence that an early evangelist of economic liberty would also be the first to lay out the ideology that would everywhere accompany the spread of capitalism. Then you quote Turgot, writing in 1773, all branches of commerce ought to be free, equally free, and entirely free. Can capitalism succeed without faith in progress? How much does capitalism depend on faith in progress to succeed? I, I don't know if capitalism can succeed, and I, I, uh, but um, but I think uh, you know progress has since the beginning uh, beginnings of capitalist um, economy and the politics that associated were associated with that. You know, progress has been the religion that accompanied capitalism everywhere it went. Um, and you know, it's funny. I was thinking when we think about climate change and what we're all looking at right now, because that's sort of what got me thinking about a lot of this stuff is trying to, trying to understand what was happening. Um, that if you accept that climate change is real, um, and if you accept that um, it's caused by human endeavors and by, you know, by industrialization, um, then you can't also really believe that capitalism worked out that well. Um, and you can't believe that technological civilization, as we know, it, industrial civilization worked out that well. And you also can't really believe that any of this story that people have in, in the West have been telling themselves um, for the last 270 odd years um, is an accurate story. Um, because things, you know, may have gotten better for a little while for some some amount of people on the on the globe, but it's actually destroying everything and going to make it impossible for, for human life to to survive here. Um, so that, that's a pretty a pretty serious challenge to to this narrative. What would you? Because I, I have actually heard this on talk radio. Unfortunately, I don't know why I would waste my time listening, but unfortunately, I have heard this said. <laughs> uh, I've often heard people from the far right when people are uh, complaining about uh, the lack of indigenous rights or treatment of. Uh, Native Americans, uh, they will retort with, uh, too bad, we won. What would you say to someone who argues that European civilization must have been and must continue to be more advanced because it is what dominates the areas that were once controlled by indigenous people? Is the United States proof that European culture is and was more advanced than indigenous cultures everywhere? 
you know, I, I think um, I, I'd go back to what I was just saying that I think the 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 one you know very painful bit of truth that we all have to figure out how to reckon with right now is that the way we are living um, is destroying the planet not only for us but for you know generations to come for many many generations to come and for many other species other than, than the human species um, and. So it's kind of hard to say that we won, right? <laughs> um, that there were people living on uh, in this hemisphere for millennia before we were who didn't manage to mess it up like we did, um, who managed to live with it, you know, in in some considerably greater level of harmony than we have. Um, and in a very short period of time, we have, uh, you know, destroyed it not only for ourselves, but for, um, you know, very likely for centuries to come. Um, I think I think that's pretty hard to rebut unless you take the uh, you know denialist path of saying no climate change isn't real. It's just weird weather sometimes. Is faith in progress? Faith in elites? Do elites need the masses to have faith in progress to remain the elites? Does our belief that we are always moving forward keep them in power? And once we no longer have the belief uh, that we're continually moving forward. That's when the elites lose power. You know, I mean, I think the complicated thing is that, that like, it, it's worked for elites, but it's also been a powerful ideology for people who are not in power. Uh, you know, that for for various uh, you know revolutionary groups over the last you know couple hundred years as well, um, believing that you can that the way things are isn't the way they have to be, believing that we can perfect human society um, through our own actions. Um, has been really powerful people for people who are excluded from power also. Um, so I, I don't, you know, um, the, the last uh, section of the piece was about um, a, a different source for, for the, the one I've been describing for um, the ideology of progress, which is a, an understanding and a belief, which I think is a fairly sort of religious and spiritual belief that like that that. Uh, that human beings are, you know, in some ways, um, you know, that we, that God is in all of us, right? Um, and that we can, that we can be what God is. This is this kind of very powerful mystical belief in our own capabilities um, has been something which people have also used to combat elites and to combat injustice and to try to make societies more just. So I, I don't want to simply say that this is a, uh, a racist ideology that we have to be to be done with, because I think it's also been a a very powerful um, source of of you know of change for for the better. And it's something I think if, if we were to get rid of that entirely, this belief that that we can actually affect uh, our own lives and and the way our societies you know are organized in the world, um, we wouldn't have a whole lot of chance of of, of getting through the challenges that we're now facing. You write as an ideology that put European culture at the pinnacle of human history and consigned everyone else to time's lowland wastes. Progress would function at once as an explanation of European dominance and a rationale for the slaughter and pillage on which it depended and continues to depend. How much do you see this idea of progress or faith in progress at work with say, Trump's policy in Venezuela? How do we view the world differently when we see progress as a project of dominance, not of actual progress that benefits anyone by the conquer? 
you know, like as as an ideology of you know short sighted elites, um, you know, to, to think that that you know how many years is it since uh, the toppling of Saddam Hussein? It's uh, sixteen years, right? Um, sixteen years after the last time that American elites, you know, with the enthusiastic support of uh, you know oil companies and the uh, and arms dealers um, toppled the government, um, thinking they could just sort of take the oil and make everything, you know, rearrange things as they liked and everything that would be fine. And instead, we've seen, you know, hundreds of thousands of people killed and absolute, you know, absolute disaster. Um, and you have people like John Bolton and the, uh, some of the neocons who've worked their way into um, Trump's administration, um, who once again have this, um, you know, patently uh, insane belief that they can um, remake the globe according to their desires um, and that it will somehow be in the... I think these people do believe that they are a force for good um, and that uh, and that they're doing the Lord's work in a way. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, th- I think it, it requires a, a sort of pseudo-religious faith in order to, to believe that. You write of the political economist, uh, mid-18th century political economist, Turgot. Uh, the first thing he hastened to toss over was the notion that all things are alive and infused with divinity. This idea, then still pervasive in the animistic beliefs of conquered and not yet conquered peoples across the globe, in the folk beliefs of Europe and in the more pantheistic strands of its esoteric theologies, was by Turgot's reckoning one of those delusive analogies to which the first men in their immaturity abandoned themselves with so little thought. The task of denuding the natural world of agency and divinity was apparently an important one and could not be neglected. You write, for the grand procession of progress to march, the stage had to first be cleared of rivals. All the world must be dead and man alone alive, rushing to the glory of his fate. Again, that's all Turgot, I'm sorry. How much did Turgot set the stage for not only European colonialism and institutional racism and slavery and so many other horrible things, but also for rapacious capitalism and a lack of any concern for the environment or how one's own impact on the environment might affect your own quality of life? To what degree did Turgot set in motion the environmental destruction that we're suffering from today. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I think not just to go. I mean, I think you know, you certainly see this uh, earlier in Descartes, and you see it in, in a lot of French Enlightenment thinking, and Enlightenment thinking as it spread around um, around Europe. Um, was this real disdain um, for the notion that anything, you know, that anything was alive or had consciousness or thought or at all other than humans? Um, the humans alone were possessed with reason. Um, and this is replacing, you know, in Europe, uh, even a, um, you know, deep strands of belief that imagined um, that the divine was alive and everything, you know, that, 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 that the sacred sort of pulsed through the entire, um, the entirety of the, of the universe, um, which is, you know, certainly what a lot of uh, non-European traditions have, have believed as well. And I think if you don't believe that there is anything sacred except for you, if you don't believe there's anything capable of thought or, or consciousness except for you, then it's really easy not only to you know to wipe out people who you regard as savages, but to to rape the earth, you know, to regard the earth as dead, 
Uh, and this works very well um, as an ideology for capitalism, um, as an ideology that see, looks at looks at things and sees only the way the the wealth that can be extracted from them. You know, that looks at uh, that looks at the earth and all of its you know diversity and beauty, and and sees only the you know the what can be mined from it um, and sold. Um, and you know, I, I think it, it's with that kind of thinking that we that we start to map out the absolutely extraordinary levels of devastation that you know that have been visited on the planet in the last in the last century and a half. You write of the mid nineteenth century feeling toward faith and progress. To question faith and progress with any seriousness was to marginalize yourself as a crank, a heretic, or a fool. To what extent has that changed from uh, the mid-19th century, mid-18th century even? After all, in the late 1970s, Margaret Thatcher did have Tina. There is no alternative. And many of the pro-financialized neoliberal globalizationists of the mid-1980s, mid-1990s, had the same dismissiveness of anyone questioning their faith in their progress in globalization. Are those who question progress still today seen as a crank, a heretic, and a fool, and dismissed? Yeah, I think to a large degree it still puts you out there. I mean, I think, you know, certainly even in the 19th century, you know, you had philosophical figures like, like say, Friedrich Nietzsche, um, you know, who were profoundly suspicious of, of this narrative. Um, and certainly after the First World War, um, you had a, an entire generation of people who were disgusted by this narrative um, and, and whose, whose you know, entire intellectual formation came out of a rejection of this narrative. But I think despite that, despite the fact that, you know, that war was followed by another even more destructive war, um, that I think because it's, it's basically the ideology of capitalism it has remained with, uh, you know, with the with the strength of a of, of a religious belief as the sort of core self understanding of our culture um, that things are getting better, that technology and science will bring us there, that human rationality can solve all problems, um, and you know that I think no matter how many you know thinkers have questioned it, no matter how many, how many artists have rejected it, um, still remains. I think quite fundamental to the way most people in the U.S. and Europe, and and I think actually in large parts of the rest of the globe now, um, see the world. Um, and I think it's been it's been fundamentally destructive. We've had guests on our show over the last several years who argue that neither the British Empire or any imperial project or the U.S. superpower could have happened without capitalism and the capitalism couldn't have succeeded without colonialism and colonialism could not have succeeded without slavery. Can we blame it all on faith in progress? Did faith in progress cause slavery and all the evils of colonialism as well as the great power of empires over the past 500 years? No, I don't think you know nothing. Nothing's quite that simple. I mean, slavery—you know—there's been slavery in human societies for for thousands of years. Um, But I think this belief in progress has accompanied it in a way that you can't really—you can't pull it out that one is the cause and the other is the effect. But has accompanied um, capitalism and and capitalism's outreach across the globe, which has been a you know experienced as as colonialism. Um, and you can't really separate them from one another. Um, I mean, I think progress came about as a result of the the conquests 
European conquests of, of the rest of the planet in the late 15th and early 16th centuries um, as a way for Europe to, to kind of justify and understand what, what it had done and, and the wealth that it had, it had gained through these conquests. Um, and it allowed, I think it became especially powerful in the 19th century, both because it functioned so well alongside of capitalism um, and because it continued to uh, to justify the you know genocides that that went along with colonialism, um, that you know as as European and uh, North American powers you know divided the globe up among themselves um, and you know really authored you know horrendous crimes um, pretty much on every other corner of the globe, uh, they needed to still tell themselves that they were superior and virtuous, and they found a way to do it. Um, and, uh, and, and that's, I think, what the ideology of progress has worked for and still works for. Uh, you write that if Europe represented the mature stage of human development, it would need a lineage. And then you talk about this lineage, lineage going back to the Greeks, as you mentioned earlier, that this image would not have been recognized by either the Greek contemporaries or by their inhabitants of the time of Greeks being like the epitome of human civilization uh, or of the inhabitants of the continents being mowed under by Western uh, civilization was irrelevant to the larger project of historical re- reclamation. Plato and Aeschylus became the heritage of the English, the Germans, and the far-flung white Americans. Greek joined Latin as an indispensable part of the education of the European elite. Classics emerged as a discipline. Does our study of Greek civilization and the classics, our reverence of them, whether you know we realize it or not, does that reinforce a false European connection to Greece based on ideas that are filled with white and European supremacy. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think that this, um, you know, it, it was in the late 18th and uh, early 19th century that, that Greek entered the, you know, educated upper-class uh, Europeans knew Latin before that, but they started to learn Greek too um, and to understand Greeks as somehow their ancestors. Um and this, you know, is one of the things that allowed the English to feel pretty okay about, uh, you know, going to Greece and taking all of the lovely sculptures and whatnot and putting them in the British Museum, right? Because it kind of belonged to them to begin with, right? It was, it was theirs more than the people who lived there and didn't know how to take care of it. Um, but, but absolutely, I think, um, I think it's also important to understand that that the notion we have of who the Greeks were and what they what that means as that they were the uh, you know as they were the sort of the fathers of, of our civilization um, is a is completely distinct from how they understood themselves um, you know the Greeks I think I mentioned earlier uh, were in awe of the Egyptians um, and had no had no problem um, talking about what they had borrowed from them and what they had taken from them um, also had no problem taking uh, talking about what they had taken um, from you know from points further east uh, from from the Phoenicians from from Levantine cultures um, and you know understood themselves in a context which we have pretty much erased when we talk about the Greeks um, I, you know it's kind of like all of those lovely white sculptures um, those white marble sculptures you know used to be painted they used to be very colorful and now they're all white um, and I think a, sort of a similar process has happened where all, all of that color was sort of bleached out so that we could remember them as these, these, these pure white people, you know, just like us. 
Sheesh. So uh, with this idea of faith and progress and uh, European superiority, you write that it's quite a fantasy, the trafficker in human suffering reborn as enlightened liberator, his transformation gratefully acknowledged by the charges he so recently tormented. The roots of white savior complex run at least two and a quarter centuries deep, and you trace those roots back to this idea of faith and progress. Does faith in progress then, and we're touching on this with Venezuela, but does it rationalize things like humanitarian military intervention that we're invading a foreign country for its own good that we know better because we are better? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things I mentioned in the um, in the article was um, the, the sort of second great early text of of uh, about progress came from the Marquis de Condorcet um, about forty something years after Turgot, um, and um, one of the and and he's a bit more self-critical in some ways than than Turgot is. Um, he's willing to talk about some of the the horrors that Europeans have have authored, such as slavery. Um, but he also, in his in his vision, it's Europeans who will right these wrongs, and they'll do it so that they can guide um, the their victims, um, you know, towards a greater civilization, which is their own civilization. Um, so there's the, there's this absolutely sort of, uh, you know, um, paternalistic notion that it's Europeans that will guide the rest of the world, um, to, to greater civilization, um, and, you know, take everyone along with us on this wonderful road to progress. Um, and yeah, I think we, we, we still see that absolutely in the, it was there in the justifications for, you know, the colonial adventures of the 19th and early 20th century. Um, and it's there, for instance, in, you know, some of the rhetoric that we would get out of Bush and Rumsfeld uh, in their invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, we we don't really see it from Trump because he's not really articulate enough, I think, to to say these things. But, uh, but we see it in some of the, the, the figures in his administration as well. You write that Condorcet, who you are just mentioning, was a brave man and every bit the liberal hero. He had only the most passionate and eloquent words of condemnation for slavery, the oppression of women, and the brutal exploitation of colonized people. Still, his certitude rested on a deep and unquestioned conviction in the moral superiority of Europe, despite all the dizzying, fast-multiplying evidence to the contrary. To what extent do you believe a feeling of moral superiority can undo all the good one may try to accomplish by being anti-racist, by being feminist, by opposing slavery and exploitation? To what degree does moral superiority, a feeling of moral superiority, actually undermine causes like uh, being in opposition to slavery and exploitation? Well, I'm not sure if it's the the feeling that undermines it, but I, I think that um, you know, so long as you believe uh, in your in your own uh, in your own superiority, you won't see anything. You won't see anything at all except yourself. Um, and and I think that you know, there's a sense in which progress works as this this, this beautiful mirror that Europeans have looked into um, for the last couple hundred years, which which. You know, reflects back a very beautiful, you know, sort of hazy, beautiful, noble uh, image of ourselves. Um, and I think, uh, you know, as long as you're only seeing yourself, 
um, you are not capable of moral action in any in any real sense. Um, you know, the, the only way to to do right in the world uh, is to see the world, uh, to see other people and other beings, you know, in in their suffering and in their strength. Um, and if you if you fail to see that, uh, you can kind of only bumble and only mess things up and only sort of only keep making the same mistakes again and again. Just one last question for you, I believe. Let me make sure. Is that correct? No, I got two questions for you. Uh, sorry about right. that, Ben. Uh, you mentioned, and you started at the beginning of our uh, conversation today, you mentioned the work Black Athena by Martin Bernal and how he cautions of history. There are no simple origins. You explained that for Bernal, it is never a question of a direct and singular genetic inheritance of roots leading up to a trunk and bifurcating into branches. Human history, he suggested, is more like a river splitting into often to tributaries, merging and diverging again and again, or perhaps like a crowd joining arms and letting go, splitting into smaller groups that at times reach out to clasp hands with one another. How does viewing history as a river rather than having faith in progress change the way we view history? Does viewing history as a river to some extent even potentially de-weaponize a historical uh, view based on faith in progress? Yeah, I, sh- I should hope so. Um, I mean, if you, if you, if you, you know, don't allow yourself to believe that you're in possession of this one lineage, um, but instead understand that there are, you know, infinite intricate intersecting lineages everywhere. Um, then it's a lot harder to um, to justify uh, the kind of domination that we've been talking about. Um, and you know, I, I think you know our only hope as humans, you know, at this point is. Um, not just not just not believing that we that we you know as as Europeans are, or you know are um, at the kind of receiving end of this one great tradition, um, and to under, I'm sorry I'm, I'm being unclear, but not just to understand that this is this is a question of humans being inter, interconnected to one another, right? The, 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 but this is also a question of all species being to get interconnected to one another and all forms of life. Like this is this is our only hope at this point um, to not see ourselves as this you know exceptional superior creatures, um, but ones that are intricately bound up um, with everything else that's out here, and and there are there and to to try and reject the kind of hierarchical views that we've that we've held on to for so long, which put us on this pinnacle above everything else, um, and to understand that we you know we're 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 all in this together and we all need each other. Um, and uh, and the, the kind this, this understanding of ourselves um, as special and unique and superior um, has only led and will only lead to our own destruction. We have been speaking with author Ben Ehrenreich, who wrote the article "After the Storm: Progress and the Demented Quest for Historical Purity," which appears in Baffler Number Forty Three. Ben is the author of a couple of novels, "Ether" and "The Suitors." His most recent nonfiction book is 2017's "The Way to the Spring: Life and Death in Palestine." You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Ehrenreich, and you can find out more about Ben at BenEhrenreich.net. We have a direct link for you at our website, ThisIsHell.com. One last question for you. Ben, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. 
do we need to lose faith in progress in order to progress? Do we need to get away from this idea that we are inevitably headed towards a Star Trek utopian future in order for us to actually get to a Star Trek utopian future? Now, that's an easy question. That's not from hell. <laughs> um, um, let me first say that the, uh, the essay that we're in the bathroom, everything I've been talking about now is, uh, is part of a book which I've been working on, which uh, hopefully will find its way into the world very soon. So please be on the lookout for that. But, um, but yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, in order to, you know, to reckon with uh, the demands of the future of our, of our children, our grandchildren, all the generations we don't know yet, um, to, to reckon with the demands of the past that the dead make on us, that our ancestors make on us. Um, you know, we have to reach out to all of them. And that, and, 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 and that means getting rid of this, this belief that time is this one-way track that will inevitably lead some of us to perfection. Uh, I mean, shedding that entirely. Um, and I think only by doing that um, is, there, is there any hope at all um, that we can learn to live with each other and with other species on this planet and, and with the, the planet and, you know, every other speck of dust in the cosmos. Oh, it's ben, when is your book going to be coming out? Do you know? Don't know yet. Soon, I hope. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, when it does, I want to make sure. You, who's your publisher? The book's got to get finished first. All right. Okay. I wasn't too sure yeah. if you're working on it. But uh, so, yeah, when, as soon as the book comes out, uh, make sure that we'll make sure that we stay in contact with you because I definitely want to have you back on the air. This was uh, not only a fascinating conversation, this is really spectacular writing. There's so much that we didn't, I mean, we've been talking for over 40 minutes and there's so much that we didn't even touch on about this book. Uh, you write about Walter Benjamin and uh, a painting that he had of Paul Clay that has this great interpreta- reinterpretation of history. It really is a fantastic article. So thank you so much for being on our show, and we look forward to having you back on in the near future. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Take care. That, again, is Ben Ehrenreich. You can find all of his work at benehrenreich.net. And with that, we are back in 2022. Um, Yeah, uh, so this was the last of uh these limbo staff picks um so the show returns to regular programming on monday please everyone knock on wood and cross your fingers that nothing else happens uh we will continue now um with uh we will continue now with uh, uh, the, the way that we usually do with uh, question from hell stuff and then the upcoming uh, moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. Um yeah, next week we will have an all new Chuck uh, all new all old Chuck. We will also have an all new Rotten History and all new question from hell and uh, a new moment from moment of truth next week. If you wish to show your appreciation for our work here, go to our site, thisishell.com, and click on support. Uh, there you can buy our merch or subscribe to our Patreon, um, which you can also find at patreon.com slash thisishell, all of which keeps this year completely listener-supported blimp in the air. Without you, we got nothing. We guarantee to you, on the graves 
of our dear fathers that there will be all new interviews, all new monologues, all new all, all old Chuck uh, coming next week. Again, not if you don't knock on wood, so please go ahead. Uh, so thanks to all of you for your support. Now, let's see what answers we have for this week's question from hell. A reminder for the deal listening audience, this week's question from hell was, what are you replacing white people with? What are you replacing white people with? On Facebook, Bradley R. says, a diversified cohort of atomized techno-feudal serfs. Robots? Sounds like it. Uh, Pete V. says, two-ply quilted toilet paper. I mean, finally useful for something, I guess. Kenneth G. says, gene flow. Uh, I don't exactly know what, what that's supposed to be, but fine. Uh, Kim G. says, NFTs. Um, I've heard that actually a lot. Or rather, that, that seems to be a popular answer. And Martin S. says, pantsuits stuffed with soggy newspapers. And Alex M. says, soggy newspapers stuffed with pantsuits. So there. Staring into the abyss of this late-stage capitalist world as it circles the proverbial toilet bowl at rapidly increasing speed so that you don't have to, this is hell. We will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following the upcoming installment of The Moment of Truth with Jeff Dorchin, who is still live and alive, I think, living in the studio. Um, yeah, if you want to prove that one can have a successful progressive talk radio podcast streaming program without having to pay close attention to what we say so that we don't lose the goodwill and material support of our advertising overlords... You can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Go to our website, thisishell.com, and click on support and see how you can further enable us to keep on doing what we're doing. Bad habits, good habits, and everything in between. If you want to be an enabler, at least enable some good things once in your life. After the upcoming segment, I will read the final answers to this week's question from hell and announce this week's glorious winner. Broadcasting live and in color, from lands stolen from the Council of the Three Fires, the Miami, the Ho-Chunk, the Menominee, the Sock, the Fox, the Kickapoo, and the Illinois people. Still a lot of people that land was stolen from. This is hell. And here is one who knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> live in studio, this time with his mic switched on, it's Jeff Dorchin. What? Fun with actual Nazis. I understand that no one listening to this, assuming anyone ever does, is one of those who, upon learning of the shooting in Buffalo and the shooter's political leanings, said to themselves, darn it, another stain on the reputation of neo-Nazi ideology, which is otherwise a force for social good. Nonetheless, it is to those magical and absent intellects, I address the following. 
you pilled people will try to get us to believe with a straight face that all the violence today emerges from three non-right-wing sources. A culture of black people raised to behave antagonistically toward cops who are only trying their best to help keep order among a self-victimizing underclass created by JFK and LBJ. Muslims, Mexicans, and other foreigners. Antifa. Even if any of those were the true source of violence in the world, here in the USA, there are enough actual neo-Nazis excessively laden with firearms and lunatic conspiracy theories to guarantee that at least several times a season, a neo-Nazi will commit a mass shooting and leave behind a white nationalist manifesto explaining clearly their Nazi reasons for what I call going prenatal. Going postal was always unfair to the hundreds of thousands of postal workers who never take out their Ill, their le- legitimate or illegitimate grievances on their co-workers in a paroxysm of flying lead. I call it going prenatal because replacement theory is what a fetus would believe at 15 weeks if it actually had an operational human brain. It's like infantile but even less mature. The bard, or as the groundlings know him, Shakespeare, famously theorized that if a million monkeys were given a million typewriters and an eternity to clackety-clack away, they would eventually write his entire catalog, including the sonnets, plus a John Grisham novel where the hero defeats his antagonist by collating document pages and applying monster clips to keep them from falling into disarray. By the same token, if you give enough primates enough firearms and poison them with 24-hour radio, TV, and online indoctrination into swallowing a conspiracy to replace white Europeans like Barney Google and Snuffy Smith with people of color like Jim Thorpe and Jesse Owens, the odds themselves make it statistically necessary that one or two will periodically shoot up a black church, a synagogue, or a grocery store, leaving a lengthy screed explaining the lessons they've learned from watching Tucker Carlson. I know there are some of you non-listeners who watch Tucker Carlson to understand what's going on in the world. That has to stop. You people need to be replaced. I don't care what socially constructed race we replace you with, but you must be replaced. I say... Replace you with Jewish socialists. But I'm not wedded to the idea. Also, we need more sexually attractive people of all genders. Accepting people with low standards who don't mind spending their money. People with IQs over 40 who swallow Tuckers or any other Nazi bovine feces on any screen should consider some self-examination. I understand you might not think you're genocidally racist. I won't pretend to understand the twisted, braided, tangled logic by which you've achieved such self-deception, but it's time for you to loosen the straps holding you into that sickening shotgun passenger seat in that hellbound crap wagon and consider which side of history you're actually grooming yourself to be on. Whatever turbulent emotions you find yourself gnashing your teeth about concerning the woke left can be handled with introspection and meditation, and you can do what I do. Ignore what annoys you as too ignorant for consideration. But when an ideology for which there is no other interpretation than a call to arms to mass murder gets constant airplay on a popular venue, a decent human being should be able to recognize it, reject it as beneath them and beyond the pale, and revise their views. If you feel like the right wing is where the next great popular uprising is going to come from, that should chill you to the bone, assuming 
your bones haven't been replaced by ice or jello, you should have enough historical memory to recall all the other times such uprising emerged from that quarter. And if you think you'll have a comfortable place in any society resulting from such an upheaval, please understand the kind of comfort you're envisioning. Heidegger had a comfortable chair throughout the Third Reich. That chair is always waiting, but it is not in any way, shape, or form a seat of honor. Dinesh D'Souza, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, James O'Keefe, Richard Spencer, Glenn Greenwald, Ben Shapiro, Laura Ingram, the list of popularizers of either replacement theory or general demonization of the enemies of a return to white Christian ownership supremacy and its mythical orderliness is way too long. Those lapping up this anus gravy and feeding the popularity of these snake oil industry leaders need to wake up. Being on the wrong side of history, I realize, isn't the most unattractive of fates. Who really cares, since history is written by the victors, and the victors usually put their colonialized populations in the loser category. <clears throat> so let's see if we can frame this in such a way that Nazi equals bad just emerges out of the argument like a pearl from a grain of sand on the tip of an oyster's lip. <clears throat> Why should you stop watching and listening to right-wing propaganda and drinking up its deliciously venomous semen? Why should you get its festering erection out of your sucking mouths? Why shouldn't you suck and suck like a broke meth addict behind a gas station trying to earn a microwave burrito? What's actually bad about using the demonization of white, of non-white, non-Christian, anti-exploitation populations to rile up the political base of easily spooked gun nuts who see their spending power being taken away by monopoly capitalism but choose to blame teachers and immigrants? What's wrong with swallowing lies by the gallon? So it persuades a few self-appointed soldier saviors to murder people. They're murdering mostly black people and Jews, and those are the people who are supposedly replacing the wonderful white race who invented everything good in the world so no big loss it's actually good that neo-nazi violence is on the rise all over the world remember how well it ended in berlin in 1940 oh. but here we go again appealing to the right side and wrong side of history i guess i don't have another way to look at it if you don't know why the nazis were bad how they arose out of centuries of anti-Semitism in Europe, which was married eventually to racist literature, eugenics theory, and propaganda from the United States, which itself arose from the derogation of races for the purpose of using them as chattel or exploiting them as cheap and disposable labor pools. If you have no grasp on the history of massacres by white people, of indigenous people, workers, prisoners, anyone struggling against the hegemony of hoarded, weaponized, excessive wealth, if you are so deluded that you think the real battle is one of victimized white people against the evil barbaric races and their leftist academic apologists or some such twisted pseudo-analysis, you can't really be reached by reasonable argument anyway. And in that case, all I can do is wish you the worst of luck. I wish you utter failure in your project, whatever it is, if it in any way condones the rhetoric that has been implicated in written manifesto form or otherwise by the mass shooters in Buffalo, Christchurch, Pittsburgh, and Charleston, and if it in any way finds common cause with any Unite the Right style rally. If you believe that the problem 
is that civilization is under threat from a vast barbarian underclass, funded or otherwise enabled by leftists, and that the solution to this false problem is to mock, belittle, demonize, or disempower that vast mythical barbarian class. You are simply wrong. You need to take a good, long look at who you're traveling with and get yourself on track to help the rest of us save the world from voracious capitalism stewarded by vacuous corporate Democrats and tap-dancing mountebank Republicans. Upton Sinclair once said, It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. I think this is just as true when someone's self-esteem and communal identity are threatened. When you have invested so much of your being in defining the world as overrun by swarthy hordes whose only goal is to take what you have with the help of liberal billionaires, entertainers, and academics, it seems to tend toward warping your analysis of other phenomena such as the financial industry, taxes, and inflation. It allows you to ignore Trump giving away trillions to already rich people while you focus on Biden giving away trillions to rich people. Such analysis inevitably pits a team of good capitalists against a team of bad socialists. Neither exists. There are no good capitalists in the final analysis, and the concessions you see being made to poor or oppressed minorities do not rise to the level of socialism. Whatever is being taken away from you is being vacuumed up into the financial realm of the controllers of money, land, and resources. And if you are blinded by what is inevitably a racial hatred from seeing all the ways the tools of an ostensibly democratic system designed mainly to placate a public who have legitimate grievances is being manipulated, sabotaged, and refitted to further benefit those who already own the world. There is an epidemic There is an epidemic of this inability to understand among the bougie lovers of atheist libertarian scolds like Sam Harris and Bill Maher bleeding into followers of Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan, ultimately falling into a dark pit of neo-Nazism presided over by Tucker Carlson and Fox News. It's not a positive spectrum to place oneself on. Why am I going on about all this when the people I'm addressing aren't in the audience? Maybe just to remind myself that there are ideas that are sickening to a society, no matter how seemingly normal those ideas become. If it's easier for you to Nazi than to see, you are doing it wrong. In the end, that's the plain and simple fact of the matter. And that is the moment of truth. Good day. Yeah, that was that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Um, <laughs> I I am proud of uh, both of us. So uh, here's uh, here's a fist bump. Bada boom. Um, about our uh, synergy, even though it was completely unplanned or uh, and uncoordinated. Yeah, and I didn't know you were going to play the Aaron Reich interview <laughs> either. That which also yeah yeah gave this is a whole this is basically a whole academic course yeah on basically. why uh, white supremacy and fascism are bullsh not good mm. not mm. good yeah 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 well, you know. <sighs> well anyway uh. I'm going to head out of here and drink the rest of my coffee so I can start belching. Okie dokie. Do that. <laughs> Do that. And uh, as Chuck was, would say, uh, stay beautiful. Oh, that now there's an assumption there that I'm already beautiful. Which... Maybe on the inside. All right. <laughs> I was going to give you an argument, but that, that I can't argue with. 
Okay. Right. Thank you for hosting, Sebastian. Yeah, You've done a wonderful job. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And we are still live from the city of broad hangovers, which still doesn't quite make sense. Maybe the city of hangover broads. Uh, but then this is hell. And, and now we're going to see uh, more of uh, the answers to this week's question from hell uh where are where were we we were on twitter actually so on twitter uh gregory k says he's replacing white people with off white people that's pretty clever um but i'm also kind of thinking i've seen that several times have i seen this several times Yep, yep, several times. Several people had the idea of off-white people. And I still find it pretty funny. Uh, Queequeg's Harpoon says they are replacing white people with people who understand race as a construct of capitalism meant to divide and reinforce a zero-sum competitive paradigm. That is, of course, correct, sir or madam or anything in between. Um... Problem is, it's it's sadly not funny. I mean, it, it's it's not a funny question, but it is a funny question. But then this is also not a funny. I mean, it's correct, it's right, right? But I'm not laughing. I'm like, yes, but I'm not laughing. Um, infinite content replaces white people with world peace. Hmm? Mega thrust earthquake replaces white people with literally saltines. I mean, come on, can't, can't we replace them with something that, that has a little more taste? Soy Boy of the Deep replaces white people with candy corn. I mean, okay, that has more taste, but it's a little gross. Yes, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not from here. Candy corn, I, I encountered candy corn the first time when I was like 35 or something. And, uh, no. Uh-uh. Don't know what's wrong with you people. I just know. Eat Fart 69 replaces white people with trees. Well, that, that way we might actually get a chance at fixing the planet. You know, plant some trees for white people. Uh, Fracklu Elmo replaces white people with NFTs of people. Well, it's a, as I said, like, NFTs was a popular answer, apparently. And finally, Chris D replaces white people with chupacabras? Question mark. Hmm. Okay. So as for the winner, the winner, the glorious winner of this week's question from hell, um, I think I'm going with Fabio AJL on Facebook. Who wrote, he replaces white people with, I can't believe it's not white people. Just because that's funny. But just because that's how I roll. And also because this is the last time, at least for the foreseeable future, that I get to pick the winner. So, dear Fabio, get in touch with us through Facebook, Twitter, or email. 
email chuck at thisisl.com or seb at thisisl.com and let us know what you want and uh, how we can get it to you. Um, piece of uh, This Is Hell merch. Oh, well. And this concludes, well, Limbo. Dear listeners, we made it. We made it. Congratulations to everyone. It's all Chuck all the time from here on out. Uh, And we'll be back with actual hell next week, dear listeners. Chuck returns. We will also have a new rotten history, a new hangover cure, a brand new moment of truth, and, of course, a brand new question from hell with equally brand new answers. Thanks to all of my co-producers who have kept the show going. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Lindsay. Uh, Also, thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Alex. Um, And with that, to all of you listening, be it live at thisisl.com or as a podcast, or who knows, maybe I'll upload this to YouTube one day, um, and you can listen to it on YouTube. Whatever you are doing, whoever you are, whatever you are, whatever you picture us looking like in your head, clothed, naked, if you picture us tall, if you picture us skinny, if you picture us white or brown, if you picture us pearlescent, if you picture me as a small dinosaur or a giant cockroach, um, yeah, whatever whatever you, you picture us as, I uh, wish you a good and happy weekend. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.